Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Pat Michaels. I'm director for the Center for the Study of Science at the Cato Institute. That's a new center that is uh, a very recent addition to Cato. Uh, our mission is to examine the nature of the interaction between science, primarily science that is relevant to regulation, uh, and the incentive process in that science. Anyone who's ever been on a university promotion and tenure committee, I was at UVA for 30 years, uh, knows that there are influences and they might not all be good. Uh, <clears throat> now, for today's program, I'm going to turn this over to Kelly Cobb, who is Cato's Senior Director for External Affairs, and he's going to introduce our speaker, Richard Linson. Thanks, Pat. Um, my name is Kelly Cobb. I'm Senior Director of External Affairs here at Cato, uh, and welcome to our briefing on Does History Predict the Future of Climate Science? Um, just to reiterate a little bit of what Pat said, our Center for the Study of Science doesn't just do scientific research. It focuses on the meta questions around science, um, how scientific research is conducted in the modern era, how science can be hijacked by the political process and used to further policy or political aims. So regardless of one's opinions on questions of things like climate change, what we really do is we strive to ensure that science is independently conducted and for science's sake and not for any other purpose. And that's really what the drive of what Pat uh, and Dr. Lindzen do. So on that note, has science been hijacked by politics? Is there a settled consensus about climate change amongst researchers? Are documents like those produced by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change driven by politics? After all, intergovernmental is in the name. And how does public funding for science impact public policy informed by science? To discuss these questions is our distinguished senior fellow, Dr. Richard Lindzen. I was uh, told earlier, uh, reminded that we only have a few people that Cato has ever deemed a distinguished senior fellow, including F.A. Hayek, so high expectations, Dr. Lindzen. Um, Dr. Lindzen is Emeritus Professor of Meteorology at MIT. Prior to that, he was a Robert P. Burden Professor of Dynamic Meteorology at Harvard. He's a member of the National Academy of Sciences and Fellow of the American Meteorological Society and American Society for the Advancement of Science. And he's received multiple awards, as you can imagine, from those and other organizations from his research. So without further ado, Dr. Lindsay. Thank you, Cobb. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Washington at least looks pretty, even if it's colder than I'd like. At any rate, I'm not sure I'm going to address all the points that Cobb mentioned, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, as usual, with someone from MIT, I'm flummoxed by the technology. Um, where is the, is there anything like a mouse on this? Uh, <laughs> don't worry. Okay. I, give, I just want the timer to run. Okay, doesn't work. <laughs> Typical of time. Any rate, I'm going to speak about what happens to science in the public sphere. Hopefully, uh, we can get to some of the practical points, but in the meantime, you have this handout. It doesn't cover the same territory, but it does make one point, which is this is a field which has been distorted greatly and it's a bit of a shell game. 
What is often argued in the public sphere is not the relevant questions, but it's stuff that gets people off, and I'll come to that. The issue that Cato is concerned with, of course, is longstanding. I found it amusing. There's a, an extensive biography of Charles Darwin uh, by a woman, Janet Brown. And one of the remarkable things about Darwin was his uh, con often expressed gratitude for being a gentleman scientist um, with no need for an institutional affiliation. Uh, even in the 19th century, this was rare, but the uh, constraints of being at a university were already recognized as limitations. Uh, today, in climate science in particular, uh, we're dealing with something where not only is institutional affiliation standard, but also where the government essentially has a monopoly over the funding. I was asked if foundations fund science. Uh, very rarely. The, the most notable example I know is ExxonMobil gave $100 million to Stanford, but it was for a group largely endorsing renewables and climate alarm. And so foundations, to the extent they support anything, it's usually on the side of greenwash. Uh, of course, in the modern university world, funding is eagerly sought. Uh, it has had many consequences that are adverse, uh, certainly rent-seeking, but also the growth of both the bureaucracies at the government and, and the administration are very important factors. Uh, many of you are realizing that, for instance, at a place like MIT, the student body is little different from what it was in 1960. The same thing is true for the faculty. Administration is almost an order of magnitude greater. Okay, a lot of this has been discussed in detail elsewhere, and I list a number of uh, articles because, first of all, climate is not unique in the interaction with the government. Um, there are two other issues that are worth considering in that. One is Lysenko and agronomy in the Soviet Union under Stalin and under Khrushchev. And the other was, uh, for instance, eugenics and immigration law in the United States. It's often forgotten that the counterpart of environmentalism in the first third of the 20th century was eugenics. All the best people, I mean, belonged to it, whether it's Margaret Sanger or George Bernard Shaw or leading clerics. Um, it was considered a virtue. There was a public policy issue. The epidemic of feeble-mindedness uh, found during World War I, strangely enough, among uh, foreign recruits who didn't speak English. Um, it was used as the scientific justification for pushing immigration restriction. Of course, as usual, the politics had other reasons for wanting immigration restriction, but it was always useful to have a scientific rationale. In any event, that was one. In the Soviet Union, Stalin believed that society could mold nature. Lysenko came to that rescue. 
But climate change is in some ways also different. I mean, at any rate, I mean, there is a special dynamic, however, to the process. Uh, you know, scientists might want to enter the public square, especially in quest of funding. But in my experience, it is the political movements that trigger the process and make it possible. And it involves something that I think should be recognized. Science has a lot of virtues and has acquired a great deal of success. It is a methodology that has revolutionized over three centuries the way we look at nature, and it's been very successful. As a result, it's gained credibility. And in the political process, this is something to envy. In general, people trust science. And as a result, there is an attempt to use science to acquire authority. And it's already at that level that science is corrupted. Because science is not primarily a source of authority, it is a mode of inquiry. In any event, we have this, and the question is, what makes science apart from this useful? Uh, there are a number of things I've noticed in all the cases I mentioned, whether it was eugenics or climate change or other things. You do need advocacy groups claiming to represent both science and the public in the name of morality and superior wisdom. This is less true in Stalin's Soviet Union, where the state uh, was its own advocacy group and had the powers of enforcement, the gulag. Uh, you need to have a simplistic description or depiction of the underlying science because you want to engage people in a manner where they feel they understand what is happening. Uh, in general, if the subject is serious, they will not understand it. So this is, has an air of artificiality to it. Um, part of the artificiality comes from the fact that you need to convince the public with events. The events can be real, they can be contrived, but they have to be interpreted in a manner to promote urgency. And then you have a subtle psychological issue, and that occurred, that was very evident in the eugenics issue where the scientists in general were appalled, but they didn't complain because they were flattered by public attention which included, to some extent, financial support. And they were deferent to political will and the popular assessment of virtue. Uh, and this led to, of course, the existence of significant numbers of scientists eager to produce the science demanded by, quote, the public. Uh, as a rule, this became a way for unsuccessful scientists to become successful. Uh, the conditions are hardly independent. They interact in important ways. Uh, there is the media. They thrive on scare stories. This is one from some years ago 
You know, the networks uh, need a lead story to scare everyone. Whose turn is it to pick a noun? And they start out, research shows that, and then this dash may cause cancer, and someone's suggesting maybe global warming. But, you know, doesn't matter. Uh, there's also the fact that scientists can benefit without even committing themselves. And we'll see examples of this, as well as contradictions to this, as this talk evolves. It's what I call the sad tale of the iron triangle and the iron rice bowl. You have scientists who make meaningless or ambiguous statements. Uh, they can depend on advocates, let's say in the environmental movement, to translate the statements into alarmist declarations. And then politicians tend to respond to the alarm by feeding the scientists more money. And so you have this uh, circle of uh, mutual reinforcing bad behavior. Of course, in the case of climate, the support has so much exceeded the capacity of the climate community to absorb the funding. This is something that isn't realized. I mean, you know, you'll hear with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change the phrase thousands of the world's leading climate scientists. Now, I'm going to make an assumption that virtually everyone here has gone to college. When you went to college, do you remember all the brightest students working on climate research? Did you know anyone who studied climate? Where did thousands of the world's leading climate scientists come from? Well, the truth is, there were only dozens. It was a small, immature field, and indeed, very few people called themselves climatologists until the funding all of us at MIT were meteorologists, oceanographers, marine geochemists. Only with the funding did we become climate scientists. But even then, there weren't enough of us. And so the business of impacts and secondary effects became popular subjects for funding. So if you were studying cancer, obesity, cockroaches, God knows what, add and the impact of climate change, and your chances of funding increased very significantly. These are two favorites of mine from a couple of years back. One is in psychology. Climate change represents a moral challenge to humanity and one that elicits high levels of emotion. This project examines how emotions and morality influence how people send and receive messages about climate change and does so with an eye to developing concrete and doable strategies for positive change. That got 200 grand. And in political science, common sense says that claims about how social and political life ought to be arranged must not make infeasible demands. This project will investigate this piece of common sense and explore its implications for a number of pressing issues such as climate change, multicultural, etc. That got $400,000. In any event, there's action to go around. The problems are furthermore that the public generally has no concrete way of judging science. And that, in fact, has led to the rise of political mediocrities or incompetence uh, rising to the top. 
One of the interesting ones is Charles Laughlin. Um, this was during the eugenics hearings of the early 1920s. He was essentially a high-level technician at uh, Coldstream Harbor. Um, the science in general uh, was not particularly strong on this, that we were having an epidemic of feeble-minded due to this due to immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. But he argued that this was scientifically compelling. He, he had no skin in the game, but that's what his <laughs> science showed. Congress, in turn, made him the leading expert on uh, human genetics. Um, and uh, seeing this led other scientists to shut up or join to gain some advantage or maintain their own status. Now, there are other things that go on. I mean, it's clear if you work on a subject, and I'll show some examples of that, that advocates grossly exaggerate results in order to promote their cause. They also encourage an obsessive focus on unimportant or irrelevant aspects of the issue. We'll see what that means. But you have people arguing about all sorts of details that are not central. And they're forgetting what is central. And this is tantamount to a profound dumbing down of the discussion. And that includes the absence of logic. One of my favorites on this is Elizabeth Colbert, who continues to write in The New Yorker on this issue and continues to get Pulitzer Prizes and so on for it. It's amazing. Here's her summary statement for a highly touted set of articles. All that the theory of global warming says is that if you increase the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, you will also increase the Earth's average temperature, whatever that is. It is indisputable that we have increased greenhouse gas concentrations in the air as a result of human activity. It's also indisputable over the last few decades, average temperatures have gone up. And? I mean, this is a complete misreading of scientific logic, apart from the classical era of assuming correlation implies causality. There is an even more fundamental problem I'll come to that later. There is nothing in her claim that implies alarm. And this is at the heart of the constant invocation of consensus. It's become the standard argument for this. The problem with consensus is not what some of you may think it is. It is that there really is a consensus. There is a consensus that there has been irregular and small compared to normal regional variability, net warming since about 1850. There is a consensus that climate change does exist and has existed over the Earth's entire ex history. There is a consensus that added greenhouse gases should have some impact though small unless the climate system acts so as to greatly amplify their effect, and that this has been relevant for the last 60 years, though with little impact before that. There's also a consensus that greenhouse gases have increased 
over the past 200 years or so. And their greenhouse impact is already about 80% of what one expects from a doubling of carbon dioxide. So you hear all the time, the doubling of carbon dioxide will call, cause this, but that's in the far future. It's now. What is not stated in the consensus is that the above is entirely consistent with there being no serious problem at all. And moreover, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Scientific Assessment Report, Working Group 1, does not contradict this. So here we begin to see in that triangle the scientists making the ambiguous remark and the advocates amplifying it and interpreting it. And then what happens is, because of this, you have many people criticizing what the scientists are saying without seeing that it's irrelevant to the policy that is being promoted. The text of the IPCC scientific assessment these, this time around agrees that catastrophic consequences are highly unlikely and that connections of warming to extreme weather really have not been found. Now, what is it that the public sees in the IPCC? They obviously don't see the thousand pages of text, which, however biased, generally mention the problems and what hasn't been done and so on. My own experience with the IPCC is the bias is don't criticize the models too much, but in general, that's it. It is biased, but not overly. Then there is the summary for policymakers that reduces the 1,000 pages or so to 20 or so pages. And that's certainly cherry-picking. But I've never met very many people who've read that. What the public hears is the press release. There'll be one line. In this case, it is, and in the last two cases, it is that uh, there is a high degree of certainty that most of the warming of the past 50 years is due to man's emissions. Now, the interesting thing is, although the attribution is incorrect, uh, is clearly a failure in it, it's easy to describe, they assume that model internal variability is the same as nature's internal variability, and the hiatus of the last 17 years shows that isn't true. Nevertheless, even their statement, if it were true, is completely consistent with there being no problem at all. To say that most of a small change is due to man is hardly an argument for the likelihood of large changes. When claims of alarm are gratuitously and illogically appended to either the broad points of broad agree the points of broad agreement or even to the iconic statement of the IPCC, one can be sure that politics and advocacy are at work. Essentially, you can look at what the IPCC says, leave out working group two, which is designed to say that it's bad. But in working group one, this is avoided completely. And yet, their statements are interpreted as such, and then you have other organizations which have no connection to climate mouthing them. 
And so you immediately have small change is not mentioned as being small, but instead is meant as the world is coming to an end. Uh, the analogy I would give, I mean, it, it sounds stupid when I phrase it this way. Let's say somebody predicted uh, that uh, because of some activity or another of human beings, uh, Washington was going to be set, be set by eight inches of rain a day for, a, for years on end. This would be absurd. And so you'd ask, well, why do you say that? And they'd say, uh, it's, uh, we're going to say it's because of the law of gravity. And everyone agrees with that. And you say, well, what does that have to do with uh, rainfall? Well, if we didn't have gravity, it wouldn't fall. Uh, yeah. And so it's not impossible, right? Maybe. And then we should do something about it by the precautionary principle. I think we're very much in that kind of uh, illogic. At any rate, promoting alarm is indeed the role of working group two. This group deals with impacts that are claimed based on taking the most extreme cases presented by working group one, even though by now most of those can be readily ruled out. One should never confuse or conflate working group one with working group two. Okay. What makes the almost irrelevant so central to the public discourse of climate? And here, the human need for a simplistic description that is understandable is important. It may come as a surprise to you, but the very notion that global mean temperature anomaly is a unique metric for climate change is highly questionable. And yet, the following graph is the most famous graph in climate science, it's temperature change. Um, you know, a lot of arguments over, you know, how, is this real, is that real, is this large, is this bigger, is this, you know, it goes on and on. And there are arguments about the adjustments that were needed to produce this. And all this ignores the most important thing about this graph. It's that the numbers are small. They're tenths of a degree. Perhaps we like this graph because uh, we're always looking at similar graphs, stock prices, things like that. And indeed, they all have the characteristic that they are scaled each day. So whether it's stock Dow Jones goes up 10 points or 1,000 points, the graph looks the same. To what extent is globally and annually average temperature anomaly a meaningful metric of climate. I'm going to rush over this because time doesn't permit it. It's real science. Uh, Russian climate scientists of some years back, Budiko and Israel, observed something about past climate change. I mean, going back millions of years. They found that it generally involved a change in the equator to pole temperature difference. With very little happening at the equator, this is always a little uncertain, but the difference between the equator and pole, that was significant. And as a result of the equator doing very little and the temperature difference changing a lot, you of course had a change in the mean. 
And that's this, uh, I don't know, is there any arrow? That's this dotted line going across. But the mean, in this case, is a residual of the real change. And uh, in general, in science, residuals do not drive the main phenomenon. And that's true here as well. Okay, here is one example of that, the Eocene, 50 million years ago. 50 million years ago, the top curve is the temperature distribution that paleoclimatologists have inferred, at least initially. The dashed curve is the present temperature. So initially they found the equator was cooling a bit, but the temperature difference to the poles was much less, and so the Earth in general was warmer. When you tried to simulate that with greenhouse warming, what you got was warming every place without any change in the equator to pole temperature difference. That's significant. Clearly, trying to change the mean temperature did not produce the Eocene. Okay, what's the takeaway point on something obscure like this? It is that the Eocene and almost all climate described by the Budiko-Israel curve are not due to global forcing. And the change in mean temperature does not represent sensitivity to global forcing. This is another view of the climate since the global mean temperature anomaly. The pink fuzz is essentially an indication of the uncertainty. Uh, you notice if we expand it about recent years, you begin seeing this flattening that is getting a lot of publicity. Uh, my own feeling about this is it doesn't prove anything. Although people have argued, and I think correctly, that the longer it deviates from what the models predict, the lower the probability that a model is correct. But the way it's discussed in the media is, is kind of curious. So the BBC was discussing this, and they said skeptics disagree they insist it is unlikely that temperatures will reach the dizzy heights of 1998 until 2030 at the earliest. Now, dizzy heights, I, I looked at 98, we're talking about something that was less than 0.1 degree warmer than the other. Where do these phrases come from? They come from the fact that it is taken for granted nobody reads the axes. Nobody asks what the calibration is. Now, it's interesting how you get this global mean temperature anomaly. You take anomalies at all the stations, you plot them, you get something like this. You notice it's almost a dense scatter over two, plus or minus two degrees. You average this, and you get nothing. That's what you get. But nothing doesn't sell. So you pull a little stunt. You take the vertical scale and you expand it. And there you have your temperature curve. Now, just to get a sense of some of the things, we're told that the warming between 1919 and 1940 was not due to man, because the effect of greenhouse was small. But from 1979 to 1990-something, that was. Can you really tell the difference between these two? 
so that you can tell one is due to man and one is not? Here is an example of how science can confuse the issue. Here we have something from Roy Spencer. It's perfectly legit. He's noticing the obvious problem that each year the projections of the IPCC are getting further and further from observations. And yet each IPCC report is increasing its confidence in the models as they get worse and worse. It's again a way of deflecting attention, legitimately in some ways, but it, the main point is we're talking about small changes. Here is an example of why, what we mean by small. This is something that appears in the Boston Globe every day. I took one several years back. I have a more recent one I should have put it in, but it doesn't matter. You have several bars here. You have data, you know, at the bottom it's running about one month before the day of the newspaper. You have the light curve bars that uh, represent the distance between the record high and record low for that date. You have the dark gray, which is the high the normal high and low for the date. You have the very dark bars, which are the high and low actually measured on that date. And uh, this is April, so they're increasing because we're going from winter to summer. And then you have a red bar in the middle. Okay, what is that red bar? The thickness of the red line represents the range of global mean temperature anomaly over the past century. So it's way below your human experience. When somebody says they sense warming, you can tell you immediately they're talking nonsense. Okay, so is there any use for global and annually average temperature anomaly? Probably relevant if you have greenhouse forcing. The trouble with it is, given that the mean changes due to a variety of climate processes, not just those due to greenhouse gases, it's not possible to know when to attribute it to global forcing. It's difficult to use the mean anomaly record to identify whether there's an issue. One really needs independent measures of sensitivity. Here, the interesting thing is, we know that without feedbacks, the Earth is not very sensitive to increasing CO2. Expect about a degree for a doubling, each doubling. Um, independent measurements all suggest sensitivities of one and a half degrees or less. Um, might be no feedback, might be negative feedback. The IPCC gives us a most likely value of three. That's chosen by taking, this is a matter of uh, UN democracy. There are many models used in the world. Many of them are totally ridiculous, but it would be improper to be biased in favor of a more sophisticated model or a model that agrees with data better. So you just take the average of all the models. That gives you three. Actually, there are people 
working at American labs, who I know, and also in France, who will openly acknowledge that uh, if they run a model and they get a very low value for the sensitivity, they don't report it. In fact, the models are all over the place. Okay, so we clearly have a mess. It's been costly to society, it has the potential to be vastly more costly, and it has been damaging to science. How does one get out of this situation? With respect to eugenics in the early 20th century, the political agenda was immigration. Uh, you know, the eugenics movement provided advocacy. The co-opted science was human genetics. It did result in the Immigration Restriction Act of 1923, as well as the forced sterilization laws in several states. Uh, that, it essentially had fulfilled its purpose. The movement became discredited by the Nazis through, you know, their obvious horrendous use of eugenics. But the American consequences actually survived well into the 60s. It didn't matter that the movement was discredited. In the case of Lysenkoism, it fit with Stalin's megalomaniac insistence on the ability of science to remold nature. The state was its own advocacy and enforcement vice. However, opposition did remain strong and was consistently supported by scientists outside the Soviet Union and was able to eventually assert itself after Stalin's death. Even then, Lysenko was allowed to continue in his scientific positions. And this probably facilitated ending the dominance of Lysenko, since he and his colleagues were not defending their jobs. Global warming differs from these, two, you know, these affairs. Global warming has become a religion surprisingly large number of people seem to have concluded that all that gives meaning to their lives is the belief that they are saving the planet by paying attention to their carbon footprints. Uh, the Wall Street Journal in this cartoon seems to be sensitive that this may not be realistic. Uh, the young patient is asking if it's not enough that he's saving the planet. And indeed, there may be a growing realization that uh, this pretense of saving the planet may not add all that much meaning to one's life. But outside the pages of the Wall Street Journal, this has not sunk in. And people with no other source of meaning will defend their religion with jihadist zeal, convinced of that. In contrast to Lysenkoism, global warming has a global constituency. There is no foreign group that will support people questioning it. Uh, it's co-opted almost all institutional science. But there are cracks in the scientific claims, and they're becoming, I think, much harder for supporters to defend. Despite official whitewashes, ClimateGate was a clear manifestation of pathology. Opposition to alarm is having some impact among certain groups, including physicists. Official reports from several countries, including Norway and India, have taken distinctly unalarming positions. 
And even Ralph Cicerone, who's president of the National Academy of Sciences and endorses global warming, has publicly eschewed climate catastrophism. However, there are large vested interests committed to climate alarm. They are not going to simply admit that their foundations are eroded. What I see happening at the moment is that there is, first of all, an increasing merger of scientists whose status depended on global warming alarm into the advocacy community. The same goes for politicians heavily invested in renewables, trading, carbon trading, etc. The advocacy claims are getting more extreme and almost totally divorced from reality, even the reality defined by the IPCC. Public support has been diminishing for a while, as is funding in some countries for the science and projects associated with it. Now, at least where that happens, one probably can expect that the academic support for alarm will grow less active, less attractive, and hopefully lead to greater attention to scientific basics. It's also possible that I'm being overly optimistic. Thank you.